Our text for this morning is Genesis 22, but that's not where the story that we're going to be looking at this morning starts. The story starts 10 chapters earlier and 25 years earlier in Genesis chapter 12. So I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Genesis 12 first, and we'll make our way towards our central text this morning in Genesis 22. Genesis 12. As you turn there, I want to give you a brief explanation about our time studying God's Word this morning. I'm going to tell you a story, and full disclosure, it's a long story. It's one that covers around 40, maybe 50 years. This story reaches its culmination in Genesis chapter 22, but it starts in Genesis 12. So for the first 20 or 25 minutes this morning, we're going to be walking through this story. Then after that, After we rightly understand the the narrative arc to this story, we're going to observe a few lessons that we can draw from it. So for those of you who are aggressive note takers, who are waiting eagerly to hear point number one, it's going to take a few minutes before we get there. Just full disclosure. In Genesis 12, we encounter a man named Abram. Now, We don't know anything about Abram at this stage in the book of Genesis. All we know is that God graciously chose to speak to him. In Genesis 12, we read this in verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed." That is God's initiation of Abraham. He graciously chose to speak to him. And in those words, he gives Abram a command and several promises. The command is, I want you to go to a country that I'm going to show you. Leave your father, leave your family, go to the country that I'm going to show you. And here's what I'm going to do for you. Here are the promises. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great, and I'm going to bless the whole world through you, Abram. So Abram obeys God. This is all he hears, and he obeys. He sets out for this land that God is going to show him. Look at verse 4 of Genesis 12. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So Abram departs. Based on this command and promise, he leaves for a new home that he doesn't know. He takes his wife, Sarai, and his nephew, Lot. Now, a quick note on Sarai. We met her actually in Genesis 11, and we're told in Genesis 11 that Sarai could not have children. Yet nonetheless, God tells Abraham... In chapter 12, that he's going to give him this new home and this land that is going to be received by Abram's descendants. It's an unexpected promise to a man with a barren wife. And yet, as we continue reading through this chapter, 
God slowly begins to fulfill the promises that he made to Abram. Abram is clearly being blessed by the hand of God as he obeys him. He becomes a wealthy man under God's hand of blessing. He's protected. And before long, he gets to this place that God is going to give him as an everlasting possession. When he arrives at this place, it's important to note that Abraham still doesn't have a son. And many of the things that God has promised Abram require a son, and he doesn't have one. Just one other important note in Genesis 12 we need to observe. In verse 4, the author gives us a timestamp. And that is that Abram, at this stage of his life, is 75 years old. Remember that. When Abraham departs from his family and home, he is 75 years old. Okay, we're going to fast forward a little bit in Abram's life. Turn over to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, God speaks to Abram again. Now, this is sometime after the scene that we just saw in chapter 12. We encounter this in Genesis 15, 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. So in Genesis 15, sometime after Genesis 12, God reiterates, Abram, your reward is still before you. You don't need to fear. I'm here to protect you so that you receive what you were promised. I am the shield. Well, on that note, Abraham asks God a question. Because Abraham, Abram rather, has been waiting for a little while and he's a bit confused on the fulfillment of the promise that God had given him. This, this kind of scene is similar to when maybe you have a meeting scheduled for a specific time and you show up to the meeting and the person that's supposed to be there isn't there. And initially, you may not think anything of it, but the longer you wait, the more you start checking your watch and checking your texts and maybe eventually beginning to wonder if everything is okay, wondering whether you missed something, if you got something wrong. Am I even in the right place? That's what Abram starts to do. Look at verse two. Abram said, oh Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Here we arrive at the first of Abram's many subtle hints to God. He says, God, just, just so you know, you promised this thing, but I, I still don't have a son. And currently the heir of my house is this other child who was born in my house. That was the custom of their day. If a man didn't have his son, that his heir was another uh, another son who was born in his household. Abraham wants clarity. He's confused by what God has said versus what he is experiencing. Look at verses four and five of Genesis 15. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man, this individual that was born in your house will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, look now toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And God said to Abram, so shall your descendants be. So God says, Abram, I'm going to do what I said. I'm going to do what 
I said, you will have a son. He will come from your own body. In fact, from your own body, descendants will come that cannot be numbered. So Abraham in Genesis 15, verse 6 says, okay, I believe you. I believe you. Though he was wrestling with what God had said versus what he is experiencing, he believes God. Let's fast forward again in Abram's life. Turn over to Genesis 17. Genesis 17. Look at verse 1 of Genesis 17. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, pause there for a second. We're given another timestamp in Abram's life. The author is intentional to do this. Abram is now 99 years old. In the last few moments, we've covered 24 years from when God's promise to Abram was first delivered. Abram, now 99 years old, let's look again at what God says this time in Genesis 17, verses 4 and 5. God says, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you. You will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. So he changes his name from Abram to Abraham, which in Hebrew means the father of multitudes. And God says, again, 24 years later, I'm going to do that thing I said I'd do. I'm going to do it. He even specifies in Genesis 17, the woman through whom this child will come. He specifies Abraham's wife, Sarah. Look at verse 16 of Genesis 17. God says, referencing Sarah, I will bless her. And indeed, I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. All right, this is getting repetitive. And at this stage in this story, these three chapters that we've briefly touched on, things are, are seemingly starting for Abraham to get a little bit ridiculous. God keeps saying that he's going to do this, and he keeps not doing it. It's important that we recognize that this, this has not been like a small detail in Abraham's life. 24 years ago, God said, pack up your things and leave your family. Leave everything you know. I'm going to give you a son. For 24 years, Abraham has been wandering around waiting for this son. And he's been grasping for it. He's even, he's even sinfully tried to find his own ways to fulfill this promise. Abraham, he has to be starting to wonder if this thing is actually going to happen because God keeps saying the same thing and it keeps not happening. It's feeling more and more doubtful by the day. You would imagine that Abraham is, is getting frustrated, thinking, God, I'm not, I'm not getting younger. I've moved to a place that's not my home for this. I've wandered around like a nomad for, for this. I left my family. 
my mother and father behind for this. I mean, Abraham said, I've gone to war with the people of this new country for this. My wife is 90 years old and I'm 100. The time for children has come and passed. And that frustration starts to turn to doubt for Abraham. The frustration starts to turn to doubt. Look at verse 17 of Genesis 17. Then Abram fell on his face and he laughed. And he said in his heart, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? That laughter is not laughter of happiness. That laughter is a laughter of doubt. 24 years of waiting has taken its toll on Abraham's faith. But nonetheless, he presses on. Let's fast forward another year. Turn over to Genesis 21. Genesis 21. Abraham is now 101 years old. Sarah's 90, 91 years old. It's now been 25 years. <laughs> and it happens so fast in the text, in the text that it's almost, it's almost comical. Look at verses 1 and 2. Of Genesis 21. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had promised, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. It's just like that. Abraham and Sarah have their child. It happens so fast in the text, it's easy to miss what we've been covering for the past few minutes. This is 25 years, 25 years of waiting. What a, what a moment this would have been. Abraham and Sarah were laughing. They were scoffing at the possibility of this happening a year ago, which makes sense. They were, they were 100 years old. I mean, they, they easily could have been great-grandparents, perhaps even great-great-grandparents. This is, this is miraculous stuff. Only by the hand of God could this happen. I mean, imagine getting a call from your, from your grandparents, mom and dad, your great-grandparents, and they tell you they're going to have a baby. You'd have a few questions. You'd have a few thoughts. Abraham and Sarah can't help but laugh. Sarah says later in this chapter, everyone that hears of this, they'll, they'll just they'll laugh with me. This is miraculous. In fact, they even, they named their son Isaac, which in Hebrew means laughter. They're in joy, they're in disbelief. All they can do is laugh. Abraham and Sarah in their old age begin to raise a son. The joy that they have been waiting for. They've waited for this boy for 25 years. And this wasn't, this wasn't just like a passive desire like many parents have, God had made a promise. They had taken action on this promise. Their whole lives have revolved around this for 25 years. They've, they've waited. There have been ups and downs. They've, they've wondered and questioned. They've believed and they've, they've doubted. They've prayed and they've, they've begged with God. You imagine Abraham and Sarah, every time that they looked at the stars, they must have wondered, when is it coming? 
And when they felt the dust beneath their feet, which was another reminder that God had given them about how plentiful their descendants have, would be, they must have wondered, where is our son? After 25 years, he's finally here. They can finally stop wondering. They can finally enjoy life with their son. All is finally well. I tell you that whole story so that in part you recognize just how shocking it is when we get to Genesis 22 and read perhaps the most unexpected words imaginable. In light of all that we have covered thus far, look at Genesis 22, verses 1 and 2. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And God said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. In light of everything that we have covered, can you imagine a command more unexpected than that? This is the climactic test of Abraham's life. Will he give up what in many, in many ways his whole life has revolved around because of no other reason than God said so. That is the test. God says, sacrifice your son as a burnt offering, and he gives, he gives no further explanation. I mean, if, if, there, if there was ever a time to question God, this, this would be it. So many questions must have come to Abraham's mind. So many questions. You want me to kill my son? Do you remember that he's the one through whom the promise is fulfilled? Do you remember that he's the one that you divinely, miraculously provided for? Do you remember that he's the one that we have been waiting for for 25 years, even our whole lives? But he doesn't ask these questions. Now, we know, based on verse one, verse 1, that God is testing Abraham. He's testing him. I presume most of you in this room know how this story ends. But it's important to remember that Abraham doesn't know that. Abraham doesn't have Genesis 22 in his Bible. He doesn't get to read verse 1 that God is testing him. But he doesn't question God. He doesn't resist. The, the next verse, it's shocking to me. Verse three is shocking. So Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. He split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. It's, it's an immediate response. He wakes up early. It doesn't take a week to think about it. He doesn't even sleep in. He gets up and he begins his journey. Now this was a, a three-day journey. For three days he travels with his son. I imagine that those three days would have gone by far too fast. 
As far as Abraham knows, three days is all that he has left with his boy. And after three days, his heart must have sank when he saw finally the mountain where he is supposed to kill his son. He leaves his his servants behind and he and Isaac begin to ascend the mountain. On the way up, Isaac notices that something is missing. Look at verse 7. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? What a difficult question that would have been to hear. Isaac, he doesn't know what's coming. And Abraham can't tell him. He simply responds in verse 8 with these words. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Soon they come to the top of the mountain. Look at verses 9 and 10. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. So here stands Abraham looking down at his son that he just tied up and laid on an altar of wood. He has lifted up his hand to strike a fatal blow. After that, he is prepared to set fire to the wood and to watch it burn. This must be the hardest thing that a man could ever do. Yet Abraham never hesitated. He never slowed down. He never questioned God. He didn't argue. He didn't disobey. He didn't doubt. And in this unexpected shocking, unbelievable moment with his hand stretched out above his son, about to bring the knife down upon him. Abraham hears a voice from the heavens. Look at verses 11 and 12. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son your only son from me. In that instant, God reveals finally to Abraham that this was a test and that Abraham passed that test. Verse 12 is the climax and the heart of this entire story. It's actually it's the climax of Abraham's entire life. This test was to see if Abraham would withhold from God the thing that he loved most. So why God says, you, you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. He's, he's identifying specifically the nature of what Abraham is holding in open hands before God. Your son, your boy, the, the only one you have. The one who, who brings you laughter the fulfillment of the promise. Your only son, you held him in open hands. You submitted even him to me. And in doing so, in obeying God, even in the unthinkable, Abraham demonstrated that he feared God. In the following verses, God provides an opportunity for Abraham and Isaac to worship God. Look at verse 13. 
Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. After that, God reaffirms again. He reaffirms again his promise to Abraham. I'm going to do what I said I would do. It's an incredible story. It's an incredible story. Abraham's love and fear of God is amazing. From that story this morning, we're going to observe three instructions. Three instructions drawn from Abraham's obedience. Three instructions drawn from Abraham's obedience. The first instruction is this. Trust God even when you don't understand. Trust God even when you don't understand. It's impossible to overstate the shocking nature of God's command to Abraham, get up and sacrifice your son. That that, that is the most unimaginable command from God. It's impossible to overstate the shocking nature of that command. It's the last thing in the world that Abraham would have expected God to say. It's so amazing to me that Abraham doesn't, that he doesn't hesitate. He doesn't try to reason with God. He gets up early the next morning. He saddles his donkey and he goes. We need, to, we need to wrestle with the fact that this command from God doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense from an earthly perspective. As we said before, everything about this seems completely wrong. It, it pay, this illustration pales in comparison, but it's similar to a child who's been perhaps counting down the days until Christmas, and there's a, there's a particular gift that he wants. And he or she waits and waits and waits, and on Christmas morning, he opens this gift, and it's exactly what this child wanted. And the father says, son, I want you to take your new gift, the one you've been waiting for, the one that I bought for you, and I want you to crush it under your feet until it's destroyed. Any child would struggle to obey in that moment because the command doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense for a father to command his son to destroy the thing that the father had just given him to a much greater degree, an infinitely greater degree. That's the type of command that Abraham receives here. It doesn't make any sense. And Abraham doesn't understand it. Abraham can't understand it. So why does he obey? Abraham, again, he doesn't know that it's a test. But he knows, he knows that God is trustworthy. He doesn't know this is a test, but he knows that God is trustworthy. And after all that Abraham has seen to this point, he knows, he knows that God can be trusted. Now, Abraham didn't always conduct himself the way that he did in Genesis 22. Abraham hasn't always 
trusted God. Abraham's certainly exemplary in his faith in many ways, but Abraham has also had moments where he sinned against God because he did not trust him with the outcome. But at this point in his life, at this point, he's learned an important lesson. God can always be trusted. He can always be trusted. From that realization, there's, there's an important lesson that flows from this, from this text. Understanding is not a prerequisite for trusting God. Understanding is not a prerequisite for trusting God. You don't, have to, you don't have to understand the reason God does something to trust him. Abraham didn't understand, but he didn't have to. Abraham didn't understand how God was ever going to give him a son. That didn't make sense either, but he learned after all he had been through that God can be trusted. Your faith is demonstrated in times when you, you can't see how it's going to work out. That is the culmination of trust. When there is an, an unknown on the other side and yet the trust remains. Abraham proves his faith because he doesn't understand. If Abraham knew how this story was going to end, it wouldn't have required trust. But he goes through all of this excruciating process of offering his son, not understanding why, and yet trusting. That's why Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 says that Abraham offered up Isaac by faith. By faith. He trusted God. It's natural for us to place our understanding of a situation as a prerequisite to our trust. If it doesn't make sense to me, then how can I trust God? I'll follow as long as it fits into my, my box of how I think the world should work. But that's not how Abraham acted. At this stage of his life, Abraham knew that God's plan was greater than his. And that's a lesson that we all must learn as well. In Isaiah, God says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are are not your thoughts. My ways are higher than yours. My thoughts are, are better than yours. In Psalm 50, God confronts certain individuals with these words. He says, this was your tragic mistake. You thought I was like you. You thought I was like you, and God is not like us. His ways are infinitely better. This may feel relatively distant from us. This text may feel distant from you because the reality is God is God's not going to ask you to offer your son or daughter as a burnt offering. But can I suggest can I suggest to you that the the lesson from Abraham's obedience needs to be realized by us anytime that we are called to obey. Obedience flows from trusting God. Obedience flows from trust. That is living by faith. We may not always understand why God does what he does or why he wants us to do what he wants us to do. But he's right. He's right. When he says to live with purity, 
for example. It may not be what you want. It may not make sense to you why God designed it that way. Things may not seem that bad to you. You may not understand all of that, but he's right. When he says walk in humility, his ways are right and we must trust him. When he says love others, carrying that out requires trust, trusting that his ways are right and we must trust him. Young people, when he says obey your parents, there will be times when you think your way is better. We trust. We trust and obey. When he says deny yourself, it doesn't always feel right and best. That wouldn't always be the way we would draw it up. But trust, even when you don't understand, especially when you don't understand. He's infinitely worthy of our complete trust and obedience. Abraham believed that to be true, and he put it on display. That brings us to a second instruction that's drawn from Abraham's faith. First, trust God even when you don't understand. Second, hold nothing back from God. Hold nothing back from God. I think it's fair to say that there's nothing God could have asked for that was more precious to Abraham. It's an important detail in this text. God didn't just ask Abraham to give up anything. He asked Abraham to give up the thing that his life had revolved around for 25 years, the thing that was dearest to him. The fact that Isaac was the most important thing in the world to Abraham, I think is evident in the way that God delivers this command in chapter 22, verse 2. He says, take now your son. But he doesn't leave it at that. Your only son. Your only son whom you love. Isaac. God takes or asks Abraham to give what is most precious to him. Why did God do this? Why ask for Isaac? The answer is in verse 1 of this chapter. It came about after these things that God tested Abraham. This command was given to Abraham to give him the ultimate test. The test to see if he would withhold what he held closest. I've chosen that terminology, hold nothing back from God, because that's exactly what God affirms in Abraham in verse 16. He says, you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Abraham didn't hold Isaac back. He held even Isaac in open hands before God. Why does God command Abraham to sacrifice his son? To see if Abraham has learned, has learned the lesson. Abraham has struggled to this point in his life 
with consistently trusting God. He struggled with obeying God in, in difficult things. Not completely. He certainly had high moments of faith in his life prior to this. But he often tried to find a way to do things his way rather than God's way. He made a lot of mistakes. He sinned in a lot of ways up to this point in Genesis 22. This is a test. And it's a test to see if he had learned from his previous failures, if he has learned to obey no matter what. Learned to, to hold nothing, nothing back. What, what a test this is. As any parent in this room could resonate with, I cannot imagine anything in life as difficult as this. I cannot possibly imagine what Abraham was going through. Can I suggest to you that this is what true faith looks like, not clinging to the things that we hold dear, but holding everything in empty hands before God. We talk about these sorts of truths often. God doesn't want part of you. He wants you. He wants all of you. Abraham demonstrates that he is holding nothing back from God when he is willing to give what he holds dearest. It's important for us to ask whether there are areas of our lives that are being held back from God. We're saying you can have all of me except for this. We may not articulate it that way, but it's important for us to evaluate whether that is actually the case. You can have all of me except for what I talk about with this particular friend. You can have all of me except for my finances. You can have all of me except for my sports, all of me except for the things that I look at, all of me except for my entertainment or my friendships, all of me except for my children. I want to be clear. Certainly, those things are not, are not sinful inherently. The question before us in this text is, do we hold all things, all things in an open hand before God? Our trust and our obedience is demonstrated when we hold nothing back. doesn't mean perfectionism. It means a willingness to submit every category of our lives to him. Nothing is off limits. So Pastor Rick right now is preaching through Ephesians 4, and I hope everyone in this room, as he's been walking through this, has been able to identify parts of your lives where you can continue to grow in submission to Christ. As those are identified, Abraham demonstrates a response that says, even this is yours. Even this is yours. God demanded the thing that Abraham held dearest. Because when Abraham surrenders that, he shows that he fears the Lord. God's demand of sacrificing, of sacrificing Isaac. It's not because God wanted, it's not because God wanted Isaac. God demands that Abraham sacrifice Isaac because God wants Abraham. You see that distinction? God wanted Abraham. And when Abraham obeyed, he demonstrated to God, you have all of me, even Isaac. Even Isaac is yours. He holds nothing back. And that brings us to a third instruction from the obedience of Abraham. 
A third instruction drawn from the obedience of Abraham. Number three, cling to the promises of God. Cling to the promises of God. Trust God even when you don't understand. Hold nothing back from God and cling to the promises of God. These are instructions that we draw from Abraham's obedience. In the passing of this test, Abraham showed that he had grown to believe that God would accomplish his promises in unimaginable ways. He'd learned this lesson. 25 years ago, God had said to him, I'm going to make a great nation. Innumerable descendants will come to the man with a barren wife. God had shown that he could accomplish his plan in ways that Abraham couldn't even imagine. For 25 years, for 25 years, Abraham's life had revolved around the promises of God. He sees some of them fulfilled, and there are some that he has to wait for. And all along the way, he's learning, he's learning that God always keeps his word. He doubted many times. He doubted whether or not he was going to have a son, but God kept his promise. He kept his promise. So when God says, sacrifice your son, Abraham doesn't give up on the promises. He's learned not to do that. No, Abraham embraces the promises more than he ever has in this moment. When God says, offer your son as a burns offering, he doesn't abandon the promises. He embraces the promises. I want to show this to you over in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, you're welcome to turn there. I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, because in that text, we're given a fascinating insight into Abraham's thought process through this testing. I want us to see in this how Abraham is clinging to the promises of God. Verse 17. Hebrews 11, verse 17, by faith. Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was, opening, was, was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. The author of Hebrews captures this exact thought. The tension of this story, the author of Hebrews tells us, is that God is asking Abraham for the person through whom the promise flows. And he gives us this fascinating insight, this inspired insight into why Abraham was able to trust God. Because he knew, he thought about the fact, he considered that God can do miraculous things to keep his promises. God can do miraculous things to keep his promises. Abraham was convinced at this stage of his life that God was going to do what he said even if a resurrection was required. Hebrews 11 doesn't say that Abraham knew God was going to resurrect his son. It says that he thought he can. He can do it. I've seen him do things like this before. He knew that God wouldn't change his word. 
God said he's going to make me into a great nation, a father of many descendants, and it's coming through Isaac. He didn't know how God would do it, but he knew that God always keeps his promises. Hebrews 11 tells us Abraham Abraham didn't think God was going to stop him from killing his son. Abraham thought he was going to have to do it and that God would make a way. He clung in that moment of climactic faith to the promises of God. (laughs) And immediately after this scene in which Abraham is stopped from slaying Isaac, do you know what God does with Abraham? He reminds him one more time about the promises. The last words of God in Genesis 22 are this. Abraham, this is right after he stopped him from killing his son. Abraham, I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand of the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of your enemies. He reiterates the promises. One of the messages of the entire book of Genesis is that God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. We must cling. Cling to the promises of God. He will fulfill them. The question for us is, what are those promises? When you think upon the promises of God, it's easy to think of of very specific statements in God's word that may be articulated as exact promises. But I would suggest that as we think through application of this instruction, we consider the fact that everything God has ever said is total truth. Every word of God is true. It is the bedrock upon which you can build your life. He cannot lie. And he does not change. Every word God speaks is truth. And that truth is contained in your Bibles. There are not, there are not like 17 promises of God that you as a Christian need to hold to. His trustworthy statements are written on every page of this book. I can can give you examples, but they're only examples. He has said, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Cling to that promise. He's, He's with you. He said, whoever believes in me will not perish, but have everlasting life. Live your life clinging to the truth that everlasting life is yours if you've responded with faith in the person of Jesus. Some of these, some of these don't sound like promises, but they are. Think Think about Romans chapter 8. He said there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's promise there. There's promise there. Cling to the fact that you are not condemned if you are a follower of Jesus. You bear the righteousness of Christ. He has said in John 15, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. There's promise there. Cling to the promise that spiritual growth and obedience comes when we live our lives rooted in the person of Jesus. He said, no one can snatch you out of my Father's hand. Embrace that truth that you're secured by the blood of Jesus and that no one can take that away from you. He said, I'm working all things together for your good. He's promised that his plan is working out in this broken world in a way that is for your good. Cling to that promise. Know that promise. Rehearse that promise. He said, one day I'm coming back and I'll receive you to myself and you will live with me forever in paradise. What God has said, he will do. Abraham obeys, clinging to the promises 
of God. Abraham knew that God wouldn't break his word. He knew that he could obey with full confidence that God is good and that everything he does is good. And we must do the same. Demonstrate faith like Abraham's. I wonder, I wonder how I would respond. I wonder how we would respond if we were tested like Abraham. James 2 tells us that this event, this event, according to James 2, is what proved that Abraham's faith wasn't fake. This put that on display, that it was real, that it was genuine. Abraham knew that faithful devotion to God, loving God, was his life's task no matter what it cost. Let's follow his example. Let's follow his example, trusting God even when we don't understand, holding nothing back from him, and clinging to his promises.